Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, so we're in Deuteronomy 33, picking up where we left off, and and we're right at the end. We're right at the end of the Torah. We're going to finish it up tonight. Uh, it looks like, just for those of you who like numbers, uh, we have done uh, 36 teachings in Genesis, 33 in Exodus, 21 in Leviticus, 23 in Numbers, 21 in Deuteronomy, for a total of 134 teachings to do the Torah, uh, making fairly good pace. Um, but we're picking up here in Deuteronomy at the end, and, and we're going to finish the Torah. We're going to finish this portion of the Bible that the Sadducees felt was the only portion of the Bible that, that, that Jewish kids, including Jesus, would have learned the Torah. Uh, prior to coming of age, it would have been something that they read every seven years, that this is what the law is and this is what it looks like. And at the beginning of Deuteronomy, just for context, remember Moses gave them reasons to study the law because one, God said so, because there were blessings and curses, and because it's the right thing to do because God's law is good. So as we've gone through Deuteronomy, we've run through this law, this Suzerian covenant format between a king and their subjects um, that says if you do what you're asked to do under the law, then you will have these blessings from the king. And all of that's been part of Deuteronomy. The law has been laid out clearly, civic law, um, personal law, and, um, and national law. And then, and then uh, we've seen a transition from that to this the the ending where they went through all the blessings and curses of the king and Moses has announced that he's going to hand things off to Joshua God has um, announced that himself to the people of Israel so that there's a clear transition of power that's about to happen and and now we're in the end these these addendums at the end where Moses is wrapping things up and there it's kind of this re record of the last couple days of Moses where he gives last time we met he gave a bunch of blessings to the different tribes of, of Judah and then a song he sang them a song and it was a prophetic song it had the entire history of the world laid out uh, and to date uh, Moses kind of nailed it I mean he said here's what's going to happen and walking and talking with the Lord for as long as Moses did he he, he was he knew what was going to come next um, then we see this this final blessing come on in, in Deuteronomy, and, and we're going to be working through that tonight. We're going to be looking at how he blesses each of the tribes, um, and we'll pick up then in, in verse 1 of chapter 33, this final blessing that he gives uh, before, he, before his death. So verse 1 says, Now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. Uh, which we've already talked about this first verse, but notice one thing, Moses has gotten a new title. Uh, Moses is now the man of God. And a title that we use kind of commonly in the Christian community today. We say that person's a man of God or she's a woman of God. Um, and we see that that title has become something that's now 
what Moses has here at the end of his life. A, a worthy title, something to, to aspire to. But he hasn't always had that title. Remember, Moses in the first 40 years of his life um, uh, was initially thrown in the water because the, the Pharaoh was killing the Jewish children. So he was, his original title was that he was drawn out of the water. That's where he got the name Moses in, in Exodus 2.10. Uh, she called his name Moses because she drew him out of the water. She pulled him from certain death uh, in that environment. And, and in Exodus 2.11, the next verse, it says he grew up and he you know, grow, grew into a man in one of his first recorded acts in 2.14 of Exodus is that Moses uh, struck down a guard and then he feared. Uh, and he said, surely this thing should be known. So then he runs away. So the very first 40 of years of Moses's life, he's trained in the, the finest of schools as a prince of Egypt. Uh, and his first major acts are to kill someone and then run away as a coward. Um, and he finds himself sitting by a well in the wilderness, this wilderness out by Sinai, um, probably thinking to himself, like, after 40 years, that his very first act to protect and, and lead the Jews was rejected by the Jewish people. He was a failure and took on the title of failure. Um, and in that failure, he, he starts to serve these shepherds that show up at the well in, in, in 217. And Moses was content then to live with one of them, Jeth, Jeth, Jethro, and Jethro gave Moses Zipporah, his daughter, and he became a servant of Jethro in, in 3.1. So Moses went from being prince of Egypt to humbling himself to be a shepherd. And in, in, in that verse, it says Moses was content. So part of what defined Moses in the second phase of his life from age 40 to 80 was that he was humble and content. And that seems to be a step up from noble and discontent or angry and forceful. Uh, God steps into his life at this point. So for 40 years, Moses is a shepherd. And you can argue then that Moses really didn't hear from God for 80 years. So this man who walked and talked with God was face to face with God. And, and here in verse one is getting the title of man of God. He's really not doing much for the first 80 years of his life. And for the first 40 years, you could argue he's, he was even doing contrary to what God had called him to do. But God works with that kind of material, that humble material, that shepherd, the, the person that serves another man as a shepherd and says, this is worthy and good for me. I can make a life doing this. And it's from that soil that God grows one of the greatest prophets on earth, which should tell us something. If we want to be used by God, the very first thing we have to do is kill our own will and say, I'm content to just serve where God put me for as long as God wants me to serve there. I'm just going to be a servant of God. I'm just going to be a man of God that loves the Lord and lives accordingly. And that's it. So at age 80, Moses sees God and talks to God out of a burning bush. And we get that famous story. Uh, and his reaction when God tells him to go talk to Pharaoh is he says, well, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And he was very great in the land of Egypt. It is this transition at age 80 between what God finds Moses as a servant and turns him into, which is great. And God does all of that through signs and wonders. There's the Exodus journey. There's the wilderness. 
In Exodus 15.1, Moses is singing. In Exodus 16.20, he's angry. He's a mediator. He's a lawgiver. He's walking face to face with God, Numbers 12.3. Moses was very humble. So when Moses hears things from God, he falls on his face, Numbers 16.4. Even as the wonders start happening, Moses retains his humility. Why? Because for 80 years, he had nothing that he could be proud in. On his own strength, he had nothing. And that's, I think, where we find ourselves. We can identify with Moses in that regard. So even when great things are happening, Moses' humility is first rate. And he's the most humble man on earth. In fact, we see the phrase, the Lord spoke to Moses 104 times. It's a great word search. Look it up. And Even though he's talking to God in that kind of way, this man's humility is strong. And he has a new title now, a man of God, a humble person just doing what God tells him to do. And he struggles with it. He trips up on that a couple times. He has the waters of Meribah and there's some issues. But he's going to get the man of God title now. And then in chapter 34, 5, his title is going to change again to servant of God. And we'll talk about that when we get there. But Moses' life is one of learning to listen to God and to do what he says. And in Hebrews 8, 5, he was divinely instructed to write down the Torah that we're finishing tonight. That's Moses. Now that he's completed all these things, God's giving him permission to die. But he's stayed alive for 120 years because everywhere this guy goes at the end of his life, he's just leaving God's love where he goes through the law, through the the discipling of Joshua, through the way he handles things. Uh, And and he gets this title and then he says, um, with some of his final words to the people, he says, the Lord came to Sinai, verse 2 of our chapter, and dawned on them from Seir, and he shone forth from Mount Paran. You see how the, the imagery of God as a sunrise, a bright, fiery ball coming up to light the world. He comes from Sinai to the east, dawns on them from Seir. He shines on them from Mount Paran. And he came with 10,000 saints or the kind of rays of light coming out of the, the sun. And then the imagery changes. And from his right hand came a fiery law for them. Moses being his right hand man, right? And then in verse 3, yes, he loves the people and all his saints are in your hand and they sit down at your feet and everyone receives your words. So in verse 2, we're talking about Moses taking the fiery son of God and giving it to the people, the fiery law from them, right? This image of a sunrise. But in in verse 3, notice that the image changes to one of beloved teacher, like face to face. So his right hand came for the fiery law, which was Moses. But in verse 3, it says, yes, he loves the people. He being God, capital H, he. And his saints are in your hand. He's going to teach the saints. And they're going to sit down at your feet because everyone receives your words. When Moses is writing this, the only the only person that could receive God's words was Moses. Remember, the rest of the people said, we can't handle this. You talk to God. And Moses became the mediator for them. But there's going to be this time where God loves the people. His saints are in your hand. They sit down at your feet and everyone receives your words. And A, it's beautiful that Moses has this as an ideal image where people don't need a mediator anymore. They can just go directly to God on their own. 
or they have the word of God in their hand because it's been delivered in verse two and they can read for themselves the words of God and let that speak into their life. So the, the, this idea that, that, that God is both a fiery son and a beloved teacher gets paired in verses two and three is this kind of beautiful kind of phrase. I'm gonna argue that continues in verse four and five. There's gonna be a contrast and part of what Moses is saying here, I think the big meta picture is, Moses is, is wonderful and they love him and he's been a good leader to them, but God's really the real leader. It's not about Moses. It's about God and what God's gonna do um, through Moses. And that's what's really important here. So in verse two, he gives the law. In verse three, God loves people. And, and then in verse four, it goes back to Moses. Moses commanded a law for us a heritage of the congregation of Jacob. That's wonderful. And he was king in Yeshurun when the leaders of the people were gathered. Now, <laughs> this, is, this is one of those situations where it's a horrible translation. To be blunt, it's just a horrible translation in verse 5 uh, for a few different reasons. One, they make it sound like Moses is king in Yeshurun, but he's not king. And nowhere in the Old Testament does it say Moses is king. In fact, he rejects the title. At best, he's a judge or a mediator, but he's not the king of Israel. So when it says the word king here, one has to, it, it, initially, we should, be, we should think, wait, that's contrary to the word of God. We should look this one up. And when you look it up in the Hebrew, it actually doesn't have and he was. There's no and conjunction between verses four and five. They're two different sentences. So let's tighten that up a little bit. Verse four, Moses commanded a law for us, a heritage of the congregation of Jacob, period, king in Yeshurun when the leaders of the people were gathered. So there's clearly two nouns here and the and doesn't unite them. So in, when we see that kind of situation, we got to think what's going on. And I would argue it's very similar to what's happening in verse two and three. You've got God, the blazing sun, and you've got God, the beloved of the people that are going to sit down with them and, and give them his words face to face. So we got to break down the Hebrew here. So verse five, let's take it word by word. Malak king, Yeshurun, and remember Yeshurun was like either an effective, an affectionate name for Israel, but literally translated means upright one or singular. Or Yeh, Jehovah, is upright. This There's an upright king that's going to be here. So Malak Yeshurun would be upright king Jehovah, uh, not Moses at all, a very different personality. And then Ros, heads, Am, the people, which is, um, and then Sabet, tribes, Israel, Israel, Asap, gather, Yahad, together. So you put all that together, Molech, Yeshurun, Ros, Am, Sabet, Israel, Asap, Yahad, if I'm pronouncing that right, we're in the close territory, literally without adding a bunch to it, it's King Jehovah, upright one, leads people and tribes of Israel to gather together. So instead of leaders of the people, it says leads people and tribes, two different groups of people, Gentiles and Jews, are going to be gathered together under King Jehovah Upright One. That's a perfectly valid translation of verse five, but in the English version I have, it makes it really sound like Moses is the king, and that's just not what this verse says at all. So. The Lord is going to be king over all the earth, Zechariah 14, 9. And in that day, there shall be one Lord, and his name is one, Zechariah 14, 9. And then in verse 16, Zechariah says, 
And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations that came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. There's going to be a time when God is king, according to the prophets, not Moses. God himself will come and be a Messiah or a king to the people. And Moses gives us a glimpse of that in verse 5. When that happens, both the people, the, 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 He's going to lead the people and the tribes of Israel to gather together as one. There'll be a pathway for both the Jews and the Gentiles. And then Moses gets into the blessings, but look at how he prefaced the blessings. Like Moses is great, but there's one coming after him that's even greater, a lot like John the Baptist's message. And then he gets into these blessings. And, and largely speaking, uh, Moses is going to remember because he, he kept the scrolls of Genesis 49 when Jacob blessed each of the tribes. And Moses is going to expand on some of those blessings. He's going to uh, recognize some of the shifts and changes and that need to happen, like with the Levites. But this is a general blessing that he's going to give. Verse 6, we get the first one, which is fairly milquetoast. Let Reuben live and not die, nor let his men be few. So this is one of the things that gives us a little bit of the character of Moses. Clearly, Reuben has shrunk in size. Clearly, Reuben has, uh, you know, in, in Genesis 40, 49, 4, and you may want to put your thumbs in that chapter because we're just going to go back and forth with each of the tribes. But in verse 4 of Genesis 49, it says, Reuben was unstable as water and he will not excel. So it's a lukewarm blessing, but given the blessing of Jacob, which will be coming true, he has not excelled. And Moses' prayer for them is, boy, help their not excelling not actually be to the point of death. Lord, keep this tribe around. May, may there be Rubensteins at some point in the future. Uh, don't let them perish. Don't let them go away. Uh, but there's no mention here of Yahweh's blessing on this tribe. Uh, he's personified the tribe as a, a tribe as a hymn, nor let his men be few. So he's referring to the whole tribe of Reuben as a singular person. Uh, he's going to do that uh, throughout his blessings. And Reuben, remember, was part of the um, we, part of the rebellion were two huge, the, the family of Dathan and Abiru, who were going to follow the rebellion of Korah. These were two huge families that just got eliminated when they challenged Moses. But Moses' wish for them is that they don't perish and die all the way, um, which just shows you what, how nice this guy is. I remember when, when I was young, like we'd try to get my grandma to say mean things, and she just wouldn't do it. She's part of that greatest generation. And a lot like Moses, you just couldn't get her to say mean things about people. And we're going to see that a couple of times. There's not a lot of nice things to say about Reuben in the first five books of the Bible, um, other than that he was the firstborn. So Moses gives him that slot. Uh, but then he promotes Judah in verse 7 up to the second slot. And this he said of Judah, Hear, Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. Let his hands be sufficient for him, and may you be a help against his enemies. This is an amazing prayer. Remember, the word Judah means praise. So it's literally saying, Lord, hear the voice of praise from your people. This lion of Judah is going to be the first to march when the camp picks up and leaves. They're going to lead Judah, Genesis 49.10. And from this tribe is going to come the Messiah, the promised uh, upright one that will, will come in the future. And for this group of people that's going to have that position of honor, God just prays for contentment. Bring him to his people, let his hands be sufficient for him. May this place of honor be enough for Judah. And isn't that a gracious prayer for someone who's going to lead from which the Messiah will come? 
uh, is to not get arrogant. Um, but uh, Judah here is elevated from the fourth of the birth order, and now he's second when it comes to these blessings. Uh, Simeon has been conspicuously left out, um, but we're going to keep uh, keep it at 12 tribes um, by doubling Joseph's tribe. And of Levi, verse 8, he says, Let your thummim and your urim be with your holy one. Remember, the Levites are going to be the priestly class of Israel. This is the only place in the Bible where thummim comes before urim, and these are the two stones that the high priest would keep in his little pouch. And when there was a major decision and they wanted the will of the Lord, they would pick which one, like black or white, and they'd pull one out, and they would see which way the Lord wanted to go, which seems really random. But after Moses, this is how God's going to communicate with his people, because now that they have the Torah, they have his words, um, then on these more sticky situations, the high priest will have this authority to pull the thummim and the urmim. So let them always be with them, which means let the word of God always be with the high priest, who you tested at Massah, and with whom you contended at the waters of Mirabah, uh, a reference of the two occasions when God gave them water at the beginning of their journeys, Massah, and at the end of their journeys in Meribah. Who says of his father and mother, I have not seen them, nor did he acknowledge his brothers or know his own children, for they've observed your word and kept your covenant. The Levites are going to be pulled out of the rest of the tribes of Israel because they're going to serve the Lord as priests. And they'll have a town in every one of the regions. They'll be spread throughout the land. Um, because under Jacob in 49.7, they were given no land inheritance. So, um, but they get this honor of teaching the children of Israel. Verse 10, they shall teach Jacob your judgments and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and a whole burnt sacrifice on your altar. Bless his substance, Lord, and accept the work of his hands. Two different things. Strike the loins of those who rise against him and of those who hate him that they not rise again. I'll come back to that verse. Um, so Levi's going to, remember he was with Simeon and Simeon's not even on the list anymore, but Levi kind of has a moment where in Exodus 32, they're the tribe that didn't rebel. And because of that, God keeps his promise. They're not going to get any inheritance in the land, but he uses them in a very special way. He makes them the, the priesthood for Israel. So people don't have to give up their firstborn sons all around the country. That's just family devastating. He creates a class of priests through the Levites, and they are representative or sacrificial offerings that are going to take the place of all those firstborn sons. And they... Um, they're going to fill in that role and then make decisions, listen to God, Thummim and Urim. Uh, they're going to bring that living water to God, uh, Massah, Meribah, and they shall teach God's word. They're accountable to God's word. And this is where we get just the primacy of teaching God's word. Here's an entire tribe. God's going to set them aside and their whole job is to teach. And teachers can feel pretty good about that. Specifically, their job is to teach the judgments and, and the law of Israel, verse 10. And, and as a service to the nation, that's what they're going to do. Now, they're going to fail in some regards. And as we get to Jesus' time, you've got the Sadducees that decide to ignore the histories and the prophecy sections and just stick to the Torah, um, which is really convenient for their moderate politics. Um, and then you get the Pharisees, which become these legalistic, hyper-religious uh, enforcers of not just the law, but of all the laws they've made up. So they use religion as a, a stick to beat people with instead of a carrot, a carrot of love to draw people to. Um, so this, 
responsibility to teach was not to skip things, the Sadducees, and it wasn't to use their role as, a, as an overlord kind of position like the Pharisees. Uh, but they're, if they do it right, if they just teach and uh, do the incense before God and the burnt sacrifice, their substance, their spirit is blessed. Bless his substance, verse 11. May this tribe be substantial and not empty and vacant. How horrible is it when the people that are supposed to be representing God don't even live like they're supposed to? Or Jesus accused the Pharisees of not even taking care of their own parents, and then they're telling everybody else how to live. But they're not even following their own responsibilities. So may the work of his hands be acceptable to the Lord. May the work of the ministry always be expect, uh, acceptable to God. And when it is, God will take care of the enemies. So we get to that last line, which I like. This is just Moses as blunt, very straightforward person. And this idea of striking them in the loins uh, for those who rise against them. Literally, may whoever stands against substantial holy workers of God May they get hit in the nards so hard that they can't get up again. And that's exactly how Moses just, he makes it plain. He makes it understandable. Um, and we, we have this very direct uh, um, passage here about what should happen to people that stand against those that are following the word of God. And we're not talking about false teachers here. We're talking about teachers of substance from verse 11. May teachers of substance, may the Lord take care of their enemies for them. Then we get to Benjamin, beloved of the Lord. Of Benjamin, he says, the beloved of the Lord shall dwell safely by him. The him there is God, not Benjamin, who shelters Benjamin all day long, that Benjamin shall dwell between God's shoulders. So there's different hises there. You should pay attention to which ones have capital H, which ones do not. But the idea is that like, Benjamin's going to dwell where God dwells. And they're going to be there. Why? Because the Lord loves Benjamin and the tribe of Benjamin. So in Genesis 49, 27, Benjamin was a hungry wolf that gets a den uh, in this verse. So it's almost like that ravaging kind of a predator kind of tribe of, of Genesis has changed. And at this point, Moses blesses that they're going to get safety and shelter, which is what ultimately what most wolves are looking for, food and then safety and shelter. So dwells, shelters, dwells. Jerusalem's going to be the unnamed place at this point. But when it gets named, Jerusalem's a Benjamite city. And it's going to be the apple of God's eye. And Joseph uh, um, loved his little brother, and God loves this tribe. So then we go to Joseph, the next one on the list. And of Joseph he said, Blessed of the Lord is his land, with the precious things of heaven, with the dew, and the deep lying beneath with the precious fruits of the sun, with the precious produce of the months, with the best things of the ancient mountains, with the precious things of the everlasting hills, and with the precious things of the earth and its fullness, and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush, let the blessing come on the head of Joseph, and on the crown of the head of him who is separated from his brothers. That's in Genesis 49:26. His glory like the firstborn bull and his horns like the horns of a wild ox. Together with him, he shall push the peoples to the end of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim. They are the thousands of Manasseh. So at a glance, this is a super positive blessing for Joseph. And Joseph is represented now by two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh in verse 17. Uh, Joseph with those two tribes 
since Genesis, it's now become the largest tribe, which uh, we saw in Numbers 26 when we did some counting. So Jacob's prophecy in Genesis 49:22 that Joseph would be a fruitful bow, bow, and a fruitful bow by a well, and his branches will run over the wall. He, he gets a double portion because his tribes, these tribes, grow quickly, and God has affected the population of these two tribes, and there has been more childbirth and more growth over the years. And we see that Joseph just gets these blessings. So him who dwelt in the bush is a reference to uh, um, when when Moses met God in the bush for the first time. Uh, so it's a, a name of, of Joseph getting the blessing of the same God that Moses has seen blessing from. Uh, the bulls and the horns reference strength and power and reigns. The quote in verse 16 where he, he references the head of Joseph and the crown of uh, of the head who is separate is, is word for word from the, the blessing of Jacob on Joseph in Genesis 49, which, which again, throughout the, the entirety of this passage, we know that Moses is keenly aware of those blessings as he gives his blessings because he's quoting them here. So we just know that that is the reference, that is the format that Moses is taking here. And he's basically blessing with Joseph with everything that the, the planet has to offer and with the he who dwelt in the bush as the conclusion in 16. So the fruits of the sun would be agricultural. The precious produce of the months would be kind of long-term agricultural. The things of the ancient mountains would be metals, uh, irons and bronze, which we're going to see in another blessing, along with the precious things of the everlasting hills, which would be gems and gold and things that would be precious in that way. Uh, so the precious things of the earth and its fullness, uh, obviously got Moses just blessing him all around, you know, and, and may that when you come into the land, may you get all of these things. And then the bull and the horns of the ox would be references to kind of images of power. So not only should you get rain and springs and produce and minerals, um, but, uh, you should get this kind of forceful power, not just through numbers, but military mass that comes with those numbers. So Ephraim and Manasseh are going to become militarily uh, strong just through the sheer force of numbers that they have. And it's going to cause Israel to spread out and fill the land, um, which is pushing the people in verse 17. So you push all those buttons. Oh, goodness. <laughs> so verse 18, and Zebulun, and of Zebulun he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar in your tents. They shall call the people of the mountain, and they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness. For they shall partake of the abundance of the seas and of treasures hidden in the sand. This makes them sound like pirates. Both the, both the tribes will settle in the Sea of Galilee area later on. They will live off fish, and fishermen will be their, their fruit and their product. It's interesting how these front tribes all have like a piece of Jesus a little bit, right? One of them gets Jerusalem. One of them is going to be the birth tribe of Jesus. And the Zebulun and Issachar, it's not a very flashy blessing, but they're going to offer sacrifices of righteousness. For they shall partake of the abundance of the seas and of the treasures hidden in the sand, and they shall call the people to the mountain. There will be people that gather in this area of the world later on to hear Jesus speak. Um, there will be a sermon on the mount that happens right in this territory what a blessing like wouldn't that be cool if the sermon on the mount happened outside the townhouse and it's like oh i don't even have to travel it's right here in my backyard and that's what zebulon and issachar are going to get 
Ezekiel 48 has them, by the way, next to the sea in the end of time. But a lot of people read Ezekiel 48 as the Mediterranean. So there's going to be a movement. And as Israel gets bumped out of the land and they get moved back into the land, that means if you read Ezekiel 48 as an end times piece, then in some way, shape, or form, they're going to identify what tribe peoples are from again. And interestingly enough, it just so happens that they're actually knocking that out in genetic science right now. They're not only be able to say you're 42% Jewish, they can tell you what tribe you're from. And they're starting to figure that out and decode that right now. So it'll be interesting to see in the next couple of years because that has huge significance for practicing Jews. Because with the tribe comes the land inheritance. And those people will get that land. And you can bet the Orthodox Jews will start sorting out land acquisitions. So this gets to be a really hot button political issue. Anyways, just a thought with Zebulon and Issachar being fishing people and the treasures of the sand. Who knows what the pirates have buried in the Mediterranean Sea and what's out there. But um, is there, uh, uh, um, Isaiah 2 says that these tribes will be calling the nations to worship. And I think that that's just a beautiful image. Verse 20, we get to Gad. And he says, of Gad, he said, blessed is he who enlarges Gad as dwell, he dwells as a lion and tears the arm off the, and the crown off of his head. He provided the first part for himself because a lawgiver's portion was reserved there. And he came with the heads of the people and administered the justice of the Lord and his judgments with Israel. All right, here's what you need to know about the future of Gad, where this kind of, most people read this and go, oh, this kind of already came true. The Gad becomes a military powerhouse because, remember, they wanted land on the east side of the Jordan they become the first line of defense for anybody wanting to come into Israel from anywhere else in, you know, inland in the Middle East. So you want to get to Israel and take over, you got to beat the Gadites. So they become hardened battle troopers. Ten of David's mighty men were Gadites, right? They were hardcore. It was like the Spartans of Greece because these guys were fighting every other generation to protect Israel. So they... What's a blessing you want for these people? You want them to be like a lion and ripping heads and arms off if somebody tries to come at Israel. Like that's the blessing for them is they're strong and they're powerful people. And he provided the first part for himself because a lawgiver's portion was reserved there. He claimed one of the first pieces of land. And he came with the heads of the people and administered the justice of the Lord. One of the promises they had to make is Moses said, okay, you can have the land east of the Jordan, but you're not getting out of us conquering the promised land. You're going to lead the way. And the Gadites, of course, being the Spartan-like diehard soldiers they were, were like, hooah, and they jump in the front of the army. We're going to see that in Joshua. They go right up in front, just like they promised they would, and they start kicking some butt for Israel. That's what they do. So uh, he's, they're going to do that, and they're going to administer the justice of the Lord. They're going to be those shock troopers for Joshua, and they will continue to be those shock troopers for Israel all through the histories. And they're just going to be there. So... That's the Gadites. Um, they become the battle-ready troops. If you want other references, 1 Chronicles 12, 14 is the stuff with David, where they're the kind of those hardcore people. And then we get to Dan. Dan's blessing is, again, Moses' graciousness and kindness, but it's not a very nice blessing when you think about it. And if Danny said, Dan's a lion's whelp, he shall leap from Bashan. There's, it's kind of neutral. It's not like a curse, but it's not really a blessing either. I, mean, I don't know if you're reading it that way. Uh, two things to think about. When we were in Florida and we went to the Naples Zoo, there was a lion exhibit with like lion lions. And it was pretty good. Like I could get from, you know, me to Casey. 
on it. And lions are massive and powerful. If you ever get the chance to really just sit and stare at one for a while, do it because they're amazing animals. But on the little placard thing, it tells me about lions and lions whelps. And we're going, oh, cool. Lions whelps, when they get big and strong, they have to be protected away from the, the main male lion of the pack because the male lion will kill all the male babies as they start coming of age because they're a threat to the, the lion's pride, literally, right? So a lion's whelp is somebody that has to be hidden away until they come of age, until they can actually take on the leader. So what happens is a, a head lion gets old and eventually they can't fight off that young lion coming up. So a new one will come and take over by killing the old one. That's a lion's whelp. So Moses knows this about lions because they were still running around pretty plentiful at this point. And he calls them a lion's whelp. You're a lion's whelp. If, you, if you, you're going to get to be so big, you're going to stop obeying the Lord. You're going to start doing whatever you want to do to the point where we got to slap you down. And that's going to be your kind of thing. Or you're going to do this and you're going to be a problem and you're going to take over Israel in that way. The leaping from Bashan actually comes true. Um, in that kind of way, they leap from Bashan because they're allocated land in southern Israel and perhaps to avoid, in Genesis 49, they're called the springing serpent. They're going to be biting Israel throughout their history. So not a Jacob's was a lot harsher blessing than Moses's. Um, but in Judges 18, they actually migrate. They leave the territory they were given by God and they move to Bashan, just like it was predicted that they would. Um, but maybe they were given the land in southern Israel to try to prevent that from happening based on this prophecy. Um, but their idolatry, idolatry causes Israel to, to decline. They're usually the tribe that introduces the idolatry. Uh, Judges 18.30, 1 Kings 26.30. Uh, they're the center of idolatry in Amos 8.14. Uh, and they are on, well on their way at this point of being the serpent that Jacob predicted back in Genesis 49. So they're the ones that keep coming back and bringing in the nonsense. Or they're the, the compromised Christians, right? Let's just bring stuff from the world in and, you know, help us out. And it doesn't work for them. Then you get to Naphtali. You can tell we're getting at the end of the, the second half of the list. And of Naphtali said, Oh, Naphtali, satisfied with favor and a full of the blessing of the Lord, possess the west and the south. So in Genesis 49, Naphtali is the deer let loose right? Just springing about and doing things. And again, he prays for satisfaction for them. Not running around the wilderness, always looking for your next meal, but just satisfied. He uses these beautiful words. Naphtali is going to get a key area around Galilee um, where Jesus will do a lot of teaching and ministry. So Galilee is kind of at the edge of a number of these tribes. So when it says west and south there, what that actually turns into is they get west of the Galilee and south of that kind of Megiddo region. So they fall into that little corner of where things are at. Um, oddly enough in this too, West is an odd like term. Um, it says West in the English. In the Hebrew, over 300 times the word Yom gets used. This is like the only time they translate it as West. In the rest of the Bible, they translate it as Sea. So it, it, it could read, you know, possess the Sea and the South. So, which would also be a reference to Galilee and the South Megiddo region where they're going to land. Um, they're going to get the full blessing of this ministry. When Jesus is in Capernaum, he's in this territory. That's my understanding of that. So if you're watching The Chosen, so far all the starting stuff has been in this part of the world and they get that blessing. 
end of Asher, and if you're not watching The Chosen, oh my goodness, Tuesday night is going to be the next one that comes out for season two. Like, we're watching it. If anybody wants, if you're doing it all by yourself, that's sad. Just get in your car, come over here, you can watch it with us. Steph will agree with that. She's just got to warm up to the idea. Um, and of Asher, he said, Asher's the most blessed of sons. Let him be favored by his brothers. And let him dip his foot in oil, and your sandals shall be iron and bronze as your days shall your strength be. So I'm learning from Janiel's grandpa that pedicures are also for men. <laughs> And they're pretty awesome. And, and my understanding is Casey goes in like weekly for these things, gets himself pedicures. The reference of a dipping your foot in oil is to take one of the most precious, valuable things. It's hard to make olive oil. And to be able to just wash your feet in it because you are rich. You're wealthy. And that's what Moses is praying for, for these folks. Um, your sandals shall be iron and bronze. May you just walk on the ground and you can see the bronze popping out of the ground. And so I imagine when these people go walking into their tribal inheritance and they're like, hey, look, iron, you know, and look at the rust coming down that rock. Like we can do that in some spots in Minnesota. Like, oh, there must be iron in those rocks. That's what actually happens to this tribe. So it's easy to get to their mineral resources in their territory. They get to wash their feet in oil because there's, uh, there's obviously oil trees. But the wealth from the metals and the olive trees, they become a very wealthy tribe, Asher. Um, and then it wraps up. And you go, hey, where was Simeon? If you can't say anything good, don't say anything at all. Honestly, isn't that what that is? Like these are the people that rebelled. Whole segments of them got swallowed up. You know, a lot of the Reubenites were eaten by the earth. So he's like, just let the Reubenites survive. But notice he just doesn't say anything about Simeon. Just not on the list. So sad for Simeon. But how awesome for Moses that he's just that guy. I, I think of my grandma. We would try to get my grandma to say mean things. And she just wouldn't do it. She was of that greatest generation. She would not speak a discouraging word. And you couldn't get her to do it. And I think Moses has grown into that kind of grandpa. And you just want to wrap your arms around him and put your face in his scraggly beard and say, I love you, Moses. You're awesome. Thanks for being a nice guy. And not saying mean things about Simeon when you could. And you obviously could. Verse 26 is like a bookend. We get back to that reference of Jeshurun. And Moses is now blessing the entire nation. But notice how he goes back to this. And again, Jeshurun is used very, very rarely in the, in the Bible. Um, it could be a connection to verse 5 where it gets used at the front end. And then we get it here too. There's no one like the God of Jeshurun. It's an affectionate name for Israel here. It could also be messianic because... Then he asks a question. Who is the next word? Who rides the heavens to help you? Right? So is he talking about Israel as a nation with Yeshurun? Or is he talking about, you know, God, the upright one? And, and how's that getting played out? And you le- read these next lines and it's like he's telling them what's coming. Who rides the heavens to help you? And in his excellency on the clouds, he's, sing- he's using a singular personal name of his in reference to this God that they serve. Verse 27, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms that he will thrust out the enemy from before you and will say destroy. No need to worry about defense as a nation, Israel. God's going to take care of your enemies. Don't worry about it. Don't fight them. Just celebrate the Lord and do what he's told you to do. And you don't have to fight those battles. God will say destroy. It's like Moses can see this all happening in front of him. Like, just Israel, just do what you've been told to do. Verse 28, 
Then Israel shall dwell in safety, the fountain of Jacob alone, in the land of grain and new wine. His heavens shall also drop dew. God's going to make it rain. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. Who is like Israel? Great question. Who's going to save them? Even better question. Even like when Jesus goes to the disciples and says, who do you say that I am? Like he's still asking that question. And even today, who do you think Jesus is? What does he mean in your life? It's still, the, it's still that question that we have. Who's like you, Israel? The shield of your help and the sword of your majesty, your enemies shall submit to you and you shall tread down their high places, a reference to idolatry. These images are just beautiful. I want to unpack a few of these and give you some cross-references because this is a great Bible study. This final blessing to Israel before Moses uh, goes to be with his maker. Um, God Almighty gets to be their sword and their shield. But you get this question of who. His excellency on the clouds. Great phrase. We're going to see this again in the Psalms. That phrase gets used in Psalm 104 and 147. And I'm going to read you another reference to it in Psalm 68. Sing to God, sing and praise his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds by his name. And now we get it in Psalm 68. Yah, and rejoice before him, right? So we get this kind of um, image that there is a person that is going to ride on the clouds or come from heaven. Matthew 24:30 uses the same language only in the Greek. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, and with great power and with great glory. So when we read this back in Deuteronomy, Paul knew this stuff backwards and forwards. He was trained in it. He knows what he's doing when he uses that phrase, coming on the clouds of heaven. He knows exactly what he's referencing when he uses that phrase. And what Paul's arguing is, is that this passage that Moses gives is all about the Messiah. And I'm going to show it to you a few different times here. That what Moses is seeing is he's met God. He knows what God's going to do next. And he's giving them what God wants them to see at this point in history and revealing it to them. It's wonderful stuff. The phrase everlasting arms is another huge clue like this one. The everlasting dominion is clearly God's and it will be the Messiah's too in Daniel 7.14. And it's going to be the only one in existence that has everlasting arms. There will only be one that lives forever, right? And ultimately, the only people that will live eternally are those that the everlasting one welcomes into his family. That's it. So if you go to Daniel 7.14, Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all the people, nations, and languages should serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, the one's kingdom, shall not be destroyed. So where God says destroy to other nations, there's going to be an everlasting arms that brings and gathers people in from both the Jews and the Gentiles for a new everlasting kingdom. And then in Micah 5, 2, it says, and out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings from are of old and will go for everlasting. And you're thinking, Moses, like you set all this up. And I'm thinking the prophets are quoting Moses because they're interpreting this as messianic also. It's not just Sean saying this. It's the rest of the Bible that says it. The word destroy, Colossians 2.15, that gets picked up. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. 
that when God died on the cross, he just beat the whole world. Like you think death is what you got as your weapon? And then he rises from the dead and, and destroys that notion that death is the worst that can happen. The fountain of Jacob. Do you think it's an accident that Jesus, when he first announced that he was the Messiah, did it to a Samaritan woman at the well? And do you know what well it was he was sitting at? Chosen watchers will know this. It was the well that Jacob dug. It was that well, the well that wasn't supposed to give water because he was digging in the wrong place. But it's giving springs. And Jesus says, man, if you come to me, you won't be, we won't be talking about physical thirst. I'll give you springs of living water that will come forth abundantly. Sitting at Samaria, Jesus says to that woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says it to you, who is the person riding on the clouds? And that's the question about Jesus. Who is this man? Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and you would have said, and I would have given you living water. John 4.10 and John 7.38 say, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And you look at this idea of the fountain of Jacob being the symbol of living water for the whole nation and Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman there and you start seeing what he's doing and imagining the disciples as they get back. Because I'm thinking a bunch of fishermen don't know the Old Testament that well, but they're going back and studying it after the resurrection and they're reading passages like this Deuteronomy going, Jesus, you're so much more than the guy I got to know. Like You're God. And look at what you're doing with that image of living water with Jacob's well. And look at how even Moses referenced it. The new wine that gets referenced in this passage, what was Jesus' first miracle? Is it, an, is it an accident that he created brand new wine at a wedding? No, it's absolutely not an accident at all. He's fulfilling prophecy with everything he does. And it all connects back. The new loaves that they're going to get, one of the, not the first miracle, but the largest miracle was the loaves and the fishes and providing actual grain out of nothing. So Jesus' first and his most public miracles are immediately blessing Israel, but they're blessing people that are looking for Jesus too. And anyone that seeks God is going to get it. Ask and you'll find, seek and I shall answer. Knock and the door shall be opened. The particulars are here, but Moses doesn't give the full design of it. He just gives these broad sweeping strokes because it isn't time yet to reveal the specifics of it. And that's how prophecy works in the Bible. It's progressive. It starts really broad. And as we go through the Old Testament, it gets more and more narrow until you get to like Isaiah 53, where it's like pretty much it's Jesus. And, and there it is. Then it gets to verse 29. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. Your enemies shall submit to you, and you shall tread down their high places. Um, in Romans 8.31, it says, If God is for us, who can be against us? When Israel does right by God, when Yeshua, and the precious name for Israel, when they do right by God, nobody can stop them. And that's true of all human history. When they start going off to do idols and stuff, they get their butts kicked regularly and they become the ones trampled upon. So we've seen that both as prophecies for them. And then we get to a really short chapter at the very end of the Torah. Moses is going to go die. Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan and Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh and the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, the south and the plain of the Valley of Jericho the city of palm trees as far as Zor. So today, um, Nebo and Pisgah are called two different peaks. So some people say this is an error in the Bible. The problem with that is that one is the reference, you could argue, arguably say that Nebo is the whole mountain range 
and Pisgah is a particular peak on that mountain range, which we don't know of in ancient history. We just don't know which one's which. We know what currently is called Nebo and Pisgah, but we don't know that in this age that that was there. But the Lord shows them things. Um, it had to just be a cool moment for Moses to have the Lord show you things right at the end and reveal things to you. And the, the geography of verses 1 and 2, there's no spot on the planet Earth where you can see all these places from one spot. So it would require a miracle, and that's these verses are claiming a miracle, that God showed them to Moses. Because you don't see all the way down uh, by Zor in the palm trees and then Dan and Galilee. You just can't see that from one spot. So either the Lord gave him like, you know, got out the, uh, what do you call those things? Got out a drone camera for him and brought in some new God technology and did a little drone camera view for Moses and he got to see that. Or he's lifted up or he gets x-ray vision. It doesn't say, but it says he can see him and God helps him see him. Um, what's more important here than how this happens is the fact that it does happen. Like Moses sinned against God and didn't do what God told him to do. And God says, you can't cross over the Jordan with your people. You're not going to get to lead them in the land. I'm going to give that to Joshua, Jehovah, Yeshua. Um, but you're not going to get to do it. But in mercy, God says, you know what, Moses? Let me just give you a peek. I'll just show you a little bit. I remember when the kids were really young, there were certain movies that we just didn't want to show to five-year-olds. Good parenting. But there were scenes in some of those movies where I was like, oh, you got to see this. So I would bring Grant up and say, okay, this is the coolest battle scene ever. That's bad parenting. But... <laughs> We would show him these scenes and he would just go, oh, because they'd be in like, you know, in Gladiator when their Romans are fighting the Germans at the beginning of the movie. It's just these, this is how the Romans fought. Look at this. And so I'd show him these little clips of things just because I love my son and I know he loved that stuff. And this is what God's doing for Moses. He's like, my child, I love you. And I know I said you couldn't cross over the land and I'm going to keep my word because God keeps his word. It's in his nature. But let me just show you what I got for Israel and what it's going to look like. What a act of mercy on God's heart. That was one of somebody's favorite lesson is like the God of the Old Testament is a God of mercy. This is a great example of that. He didn't have to do this for Moses, but he does. And he just shows it to him. He doesn't have to do a lot of things for us, but he still does. You ever make those prayers that are what are like stupid prayers? And you just pray for things like, oh God, I know this is stupid, but man, it'd be really cool to get some cup and cone and have them open early this season. And then all of a sudden, your kids come home and say, hey, did you see that because of COVID, they maybe they opened a little early this year because they're trying to you know, make some more revenue? You're like, thank you, God. That was a stupid <laughs> prayer. You didn't have to answer that prayer. And for this, I, I wonder if Moses even prayed it, but I'm sure when God showed him the land, he's like, thanks, God. You didn't have to do that for me. That, like, I get it. I'll serve you either way. And God just gives him this mercy, and you're like, thank you. That's so amazing. Moses sees it. Verse 4, then the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. And I've caused you to see it with your eyes. Again, that's a claim of a miracle. But you shall not cross over there. I'm I'm still your parent. I'm I'm still going to keep my word on this. Moses, uh, this is all, by the way, in the present tense. So God's speaking with Moses while he's on top of this hill. Um, I, I should point this out, too. He's 120 years old and he just climbed a mountain. Another miracle. Like 120-year-olds, I don't know if you know any, they don't climb up mountains. So the fact that Moses is climbing up mountains and he's still got clear eyes that can see, this is like the sandals and the clothes not being worn out for 40 years in the wilderness. This is an absolute miracle. You had to look at Moses and say, there is a God. Because look at that guy. And we know he's 120. Um, 
But this is the land I give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's saying to Moses in this line, I think, there's Abraham, there's Isaac, there's Jacob, and Moses, I love you. There's Moses. You're on my list. And with the humility of Moses, and we've seen Moses being brokenhearted. We've seen him being forlorn. We've seen him giving up and throwing in the towel. And we've seen him not obeying the Lord and accepting the consequences because he screwed up. I don't know about you, but that feels like me. You can't even make this stuff up. It's just this way in which it's kind of phrased and the way God does this. I've caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. It's almost like that's a, a phrase of love. And the way God and Moses are interacting right now, it's just beautiful. Here's this 120-year-old guy that hasn't wore out. He makes a hike as his last thing on earth. Moses already saw the forgiveness that God had given to him and the blessing that he's going to give to Joshua and the legacy that he's handing off in the last couple chapters. God is loving on his servant and creating somebody that's up there with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. Moses, you humble guy who screwed up so much. You're just as good to me as any of those patriarchs that stand before you. You're just as precious. God says that if anybody comes unto him, he loves them. And, and he loves his children. And he's going to wait until he comes back, until there's not one that perishes that doesn't need to. He's going to wait on people with patience. So if you know somebody who's not a Christian right now, and you can convert them, they might be the last one before the Lord comes back. So get busy, because we want the Lord to come back. But he's not going to come back until everybody's come into the fold that needs to come into the fold. And God's just given that to Moses right now. The word here is actually translated literally mouth in the Hebrew. And in Jewish tradition, that means in verse 5, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the mouth of the Lord, the word of the Lord. I think it's just like this is what God said would happen, so that's what happens. But the mouth of the Lord can also mean that he's kissed. So in rabbinic tradition, this means that he was he was kissed by God at the time of his death, kind of a kind of a beautiful kind of image according to the word of the Lord. So here's this guy that God's made these promises to, this blessing he gives him at the end. This man of God from 33 verse 1 now gets another new title at the end. Did you catch that? He's not a man of God anymore. He's even better. He's a servant of the Lord. It's changed. Yahweh, you're a servant of Yahweh. You've helped God's plan towards Jesus move forward. Look at what you've done in your life. So He's not a failed shepherd. <laughs> he's not a stubborn, reluctant prince, a prophet. He's not given the title at the very end of an unwilling leader or a guy that wanted to quit 20 times. He's not overwhelmed. He's not like a rock beater. You know, he's not a legalist. He's not a tyrant. He's a servant. That's the end goal for all of us. It's an image for the life with God that we all should have. I just want to be a servant. I just want to serve. This is why I'm so reluctant when new people come and they're like, oh, you're so great. It's my Grover voice again. And I appreciate it. I get what they're doing. They're being blessed by the Holy Spirit. And it's wonderful. But it's like, man, if you only knew what a screw up I was, my wife kind of knows. I mean, she knew me before I even started screwing up. But wow, what a blessing to just be a servant. And as a person of God, isn't that where we're at? We're broken in our own life. And we say, Lord, I know I can't do anything on my own. So just give me something to do. And the Lord says, yeah, sure. And then at the end of your life, you're like, well done, good and faithful servant. I gave you something to do and you did it. And that's it. It's just that easy. And humans make that so complex, but servanthood is the end goal. And in the world, that's like the entry level job is not what we're supposed to go for. But in God's kingdom, that's not only what we would go for, that's the end game, right? To just be somebody who serves the king and just his voice speaks and we listen. And it's just 
instant because we don't have a bunch of crap in our life that gets in the way of that. No stumbling blocks. Moses was, in case we missed it, verse 7, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. I'm closing in on 50. My natural vigor is diminishing. Young people, you don't get this until you get older, but it's like you get out of bed and you're like, ah, just let me move my knees a little bit as I get going with my day. Here's a 120-year-old guy. And verse 7 is like one of the coolest miracles of the Bible. It's one of those quiet miracles. Years just keep passing and Moses just stays vibrant. And it just happens. And there's no fireworks. There's no Red Seas pirating or Jordan Rivers piling up, which we're going to get next week. It's really cool next week. It's just he stayed healthy. And one of those great blessings. Verse 8, another kind of gift. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. So the days of weeping in Moses, for Moses ended. Do you remember when those same children of Israel hated this guy, wanted to kill him, wanted to get rid of him, and then all of a sudden they're weeping at the end? I had a secretary when I was a high school principal, and she quit her job the second day I arrived because I was moving my desk, and she's just like, I can't handle any more change. And she just she went in, she quit her job, and so I called her up and said, you know, I can't do this. I'm the new guy. I can't do any of this without somebody here and the superintendent called her and said come on come back so at the end of my time there she was we were endeared to each other she was absolutely a friend a person of christ just a lovely wonderful woman and shed tears when we moved away from that place god does that doesn't he he takes those hateful relationships and he can turn them into some of the most endearing loving relationships in the world the people wept for moses when he left and I'm kind of feeling like after five books of Torah with Moses, saying goodbye to him, like it's like one heck of a funeral. In verse 8, the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab, and they did it for 30 days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses, catch that next word, they ended. It's healthy to mourn people when we say goodbye. Goodbye, Moses. It's healthy to do that. But there's a time when you got to be done with it. And it ends. And that that morning time is generous for 30 days. But at the end of 30 days, God's plan keeps going. And even Moses can die, but God's plan is going to keep trucking forward. And it's going to do so with Joshua. I mean, he's going to be a good successor to Moses. And the way God does this is kind of in Christ. We don't mourn forever. We don't mourn like the world mourns. Because when we say goodbye to people, we know we're going to see them again in Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. So originally the word goodbye that we use in the English was God's by. We've secularized it, so we took God out of it, and now it's goodbye. But it used to be God's morning, which would remind you when you wake up, like this is God's day. And you'd go to bed and you'd say God's night in the old English, right? And oh yeah, this was God's day and I really screwed it up. Lord, you know, and you'd say, you know, God's night, you know, help me get a fresh start tomorrow. And then you'd say things like God's by. That's kind of where this comes from, that when we say farewell to somebody, it's God's passing or we're going to move by that at this point. And it's God's by that makes that happen. We don't do it. We would mourn forever. In the flesh, we would just miss that person forever. And we do. But God's going to move us by that into the next portion of our life, or the next adventure that we have. So even though we're saying goodbye to our friend Moses, our grandpa, it's God's by. It's going to pass towards the next thing in his plan. And we say farewell to Moses. Verse 9, Now... Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. 
So the children of Israel heeded him at, and did as the Lord had commanded had, did as the Lord had, had commanded Moses. Final blessing in Moses' life. The people of Israel are actually going to obey his successor. What a blessing. Another blessing for Moses. Like he's giving all these blessings to other people, but look at what God's doing for him at the end, right? Not only am I going to show you the land and give you a peak, not only are you going to stay healthy and keep your eyesight, not only am I going to allow for this time of mourning and the people are going to weep for you instead of be cheering that you're dead. Like your leadership actually was effective. Good job, Moses. But the way you set up and trained Joshua for 40 years, the people are just going to obey him. He's not going to have any of the problems you had. And I think for Moses, that's a huge blessing too. God's by to Moses. And it tells you one last thing about Moses' character of just pouring his life for 40 years into the young man Joshua. He's not a young man anymore. Like He's, he's an old man by our definition at this point. But it's a long-term discipleship relationship that Moses has with one guy. And you think, how cool is that, that this guy just served Moses, and now Moses the servant is going to watch his servant go on to be a servant too. Again, that's the end game. Verse 10, But since there is not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, who knew the Lord face to face, in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land, and by the mighty power and all the terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. End of Torah. Like, this is a great epilogue at the end of the movie, you know? But since then, there is not arisen. Moses was a priest, prophet, ruler, judge, and teacher. There have been greater priests that show up. There will be greater prophets that show up, John the Baptist. There'll be a greater rulers that show up, David. There'll be greater judges, and there'll be greater teachers, Jesus. But putting all of those together, it's Moses and Jesus. The law, the new covenant, right side by side. There's nobody that does all of these things in combination the way Moses did. So it's just this dutifully, um, they're going to respect Moses and put him on a high pedestal. The Jewish people do this. This is his epitaph. What a great epitaph. What made him unique was all of these elements. Uh, face-to-face remains, uh, remains a distinction to Moses for the rest of the Old Testament. Nobody really gets called that or entitled that. Um, the next person that is face-to-face with God or speaks to God face-to-face is Jesus, Deuteronomy 18, 18. I will raise up a prophet like you, like Moses, from among the fellow Israelites, and I will put words in his mouth, and he will tell the people everything I command him. That's a definition that's unique to Moses until Jesus shows up. This is where we got to take it easy on the Jewish people. When somebody shows up saying, God spoke to me and I'm just saying what God said, boy, you got to test that prophet, right? So Old Testament law, remember this from Leviticus, if you say something's going to happen and then it doesn't happen, you're a false prophet. The consequence of that was death. So when the Jewish people heard Jesus say that he's talking directly to God, the consequence, they got a little excited about this. Instead of waiting for things to not happen, they go ahead and kill Jesus just, you know, as a precaution. Because he's saying he's hearing from God, and that, that just but that hasn't happened for 400 years. So they kill him, and they kill an innocent man because of it. But they're not—they're doing that out of respect for Moses. And I'm not justifying the killing of Jesus. Please don't walk out of here saying that. But at some level, if you want to get inside the head of the Pharisees, when you got somebody walking around saying they're better than Moses, that's fighting words for those people. That was like we got to put this guy down right now, because we will honor Moses and put him on that kind of level. And they do, and they put him at that level. And there are passages that kind of get into that 
that framing and what that looks about. But after five books of the Bible, I feel like I know Moses pretty well. And I, I hope for you as you're doing that, and for those of you who've been here a little longer, like so far the Bible has been the scrolls that Moses kept for us. And we got to thank him for that work, that journey, what he did. And we say, God's bye to you, Moses, and we'll see you. We'll see you again. We do see him again, by the way, right? Transfiguration of Jesus. He gets to be in the promised land. He didn't get to cross over with the people, but he gets to see it from the inside. Another blessing for Moses that he's going to get. So arguably speaking, there really aren't a lot of people that, that fill all those roles quite like Moses did. Um, and he's going to stand for all of time as one of the greatest people that have walked the earth. So you kind of get done with this passage and you think, thank you, Moses. Thanks for being a faithful person. Thanks for being a screw-up that continued to pursue God, even in your screw-ups. A well-done, good, and faithful servant. And we say farewell to our friend, Meripatath, and then we move on and we get into Joshua next week. We'll pick up where we left off, and Joshua's like, okay, time to go, people. They've been waiting for 40 years, and movement's going to happen. And things get uh, we get back into what's called the histories, because we just finished the Torah. So the new section of the Bible is the histories, and it's all just narratives and stories moving forward until we hit the books of wisdom. Uh, which we need the books of wisdom. And then you get to the prophecies at the end of the Old Testament. We are moving through it at pace. Paul. We'll take less than 24 years. Let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you. We thank you for Moses. We can't wait to meet him, give him a hug. Uh, we thank you for how he used us, uh, how you used him, and uh, how he was truthful and faithful to your word. And he shared it with us and he gave it uh, to the Levites to protect and guard and to teach the next generation. Lord, we want to celebrate in your word and we want to know it because you said it, because it's good for us, because there's blessings and curses, Lord. And we want to live our life in such a way that we can finish our life like Moses did. And we'll have eyes to see. We'll have, uh, we'll have walked where you told us to walk. Uh, and we will finish as good servants, uh, servant of God. And Lord, we just thank you for that gift, that opportunity to do that. Uh, as we go forth this week, Lord, bless us. May your Holy Spirit be active in our lives. May you be doing quiet miracles and even a couple loud ones. Uh, Lord, that we can see you and know your presence, know that you're among us, you're with us. Uh, give us tov. Give us that state of contentment to just be content and satisfied with what you've given us this week to do and to do it with all our hearts, minds, and souls and to love you and love our neighbors as ourselves. Uh, we need a lot more of that in our country right now. So, Lord, we pray for uh, this group, these people. Uh, we pray for a blessing upon them, Lord. Be with us and keep us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.